Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. Once the house had gotten shot, uh, from then on, I never went to sleep at night without asking the Lord to take care of all of us and don't let anybody shoot us. And then I also just started praying, God, let tomorrow be a good day, a better day. Please don't let me have to take any spitballs tomorrow. Please don't let anybody jump away. Those were the things that we did. I did constantly, trying to help ask for some strength to keep going, to keep moving. And, and that pulled us through it. The trial and triumph of a poor black family in Mississippi who risked their lives to get a good education. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. If it wasn't exactly slavery, it may have been the next worst thing. Black sharecropper families, including young children, toiled on farmland under the blazing southern sun from can see to can't see, sunrise to sunset. Plantation owners paid the families once a year, often only a few hundred dollars after deducting advances for food and supplies. It was hard work and it was just miserable, really. Gloria Carter, now 45, grew up on the Pemble Plantation near Drew, Mississippi. Your back would hurt because you were trying to pull this cotton out and put it in a sack, and you had to bend over sometimes to, to get the cotton out of the, out of the bowl. And it was back-breaking. And then in the, in the, when you were chopping the cotton, it was just hot. I can remember the sweat popping out, and so much would come out that it would feel salty on your face, and you can taste the salt as it rolled down your face. So it was, it was something that I know that I didn't, I knew then that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I, it had to be something better than this. This is cotton country in the heart of the Mississippi Delta, a vast flat landscape blessed with richly fertile soil. Despite this natural treasure, some of the poorest people in America live here in Sunflower County, working hard and scraping by. Born in these cotton fields 75 years ago was May Bertha Carter, the mother of 13 children. May Bertha and her late husband Matthew broke the vicious cycle of sharecropper poverty and broke the color line that excluded their black children from the best local public schools. Their heroic story was chronicled in the book Silver Rights by Atlanta author Constance Curry. She joined May Bertha and me on a visit to the plantation, which the Carter family worked for 10 years. You gonna pick 200, you gotta get on out there and pick. You picked 200 pounds a day, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah which is a lot. So I picked 200 wow. my home, picked 300 down. No pounds a day and, and milked the cow and did everything. Emped all the sacks and then picked 300 pounds of cotton a day. Mm, but you got to go now. Can't you? you just... Fast as you can, your hand can go. You fast as you can. Fast as yeah. your hand can move. Yeah, you got to go. And people be wondering how you uh, could stand that heat. But when you be out there in that field, cold way air would come by like this. That's the truth. We wonder 
nice breeze. All them nice breeze would come over and cool you off. That's how you made it. Wasn't for them nice breeze come, we couldn't have made it, but God just sent his breeze out there in the cotton field. Just like this right here. A hard life has rendered May Bertha Carter worldly wise. The glint in her eyes puts you on notice that at five feet tall, May Bertha is a shrewd and at times tough customer. She developed tenacity to survive. She needed determination to steer her family in the face of hardship, insult, and violence to a better life. You have to have some kind of skills. You just can't leave from the cotton patch and go on and, and find jobs that are going to pay money, good, some money without an education. I've seen a lot of people leave Mississippi from the cotton field and go up in places like Chicago, thinking that they were going to do better when they get to Chicago and they go up to Chicago and they find out they're not doing any better because of their lack of education. So when I got my first children, my first little girl, and I looked at her, and she looked so pretty to me, and I looked at her little hands, that day I said, you will not be a sharecropper and work all, all your days in the cotton field. You're going to get an education. That was our goal, my husband and myself. In Mississippi, as throughout much of the South, black children were legally barred from attending the best public schools through the early 1960s. But the obstinate system of official segregation, America's apartheid, would soon be engulfed by a rising tide of moral consciousness. It provoked President John F. Kennedy to speak out. This is one country. It has become one country because all of us and all the people who came here had an equal chance to develop their talents. We cannot say to 10% of the population that you can't have that right. Your children can't have the chance to develop whatever talents they have. I think we owe them and we owe ourselves a better country than that. Upon passage of the Federal Civil Rights Act in 1964, all schools receiving federal funds, including those in Sunflower County, were required to admit black students. The Carter family filled out forms enrolling seven of their children in previously all-white schools. No longer would they have untrained teachers in dilapidated buildings using old textbooks already discarded by the white schools. Little did the Carters realize they were the only black family in the school district attempting to desegregate. A work supervisor at the Pemble Plantation where they lived drove up the next morning and insisted the Carters cancel their enrollment forms, but they held firm. That night, May Bertha's husband noticed a caravan of strange vehicles approaching the house. And he says, what all those cars doing coming in here? And he could see the light flashing all on the house. And then my husband said, oh, they shooting out there. Shooting. And I jumped out the bed. Ran to the bed where my children were sleeping. Chuck them. Trying to see if they had been shot. Went to the next room. Shots came in the window. On the porch. 
on top of the house. And that's when I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you for taking care of my kids. We slept on the floor the rest of the night. At least we was on the floor. I was the rest of the night down below the window. You must have been terrified. Oh, I was. I was frightened, but I had trust in God. I have trust in God. Oxford Town around the bend Come to the door, he couldn't get in All because of the color of his skin What do you think about that, my friend? Racism in Mississippi during the 60s was memorialized by Bob Dylan. The first day that we got up to get on the school bus, I was really excited about it. I wasn't afraid at all because I didn't expect what happened to happen. Gloria Carter today is vice president for finance of Minact Incorporated in Jackson, Mississippi. I was really kind of caught off guard. I really didn't think it was going to be that kind of atmosphere or that kind of environment. I thought it would be much more pleasant and, you know, we would have friends in maybe three to four weeks. But, you know, I was in seventh grade, 12, 13 years old, and I didn't realize what was really going on and uh, the way the attitudes were. Those were really surprising. Was anyone directly unpleasant to you? Oh, yes. Most of them were directly unpleasant. There were maybe some who were indirectly unpleasant, but the majority of the students were I thought it was directly unpleasant because anytime you sit in a chair and someone jump across the room or you walk down the hall and they jump to the other side of the hall or you go into the cafeteria and have a seat to sit down and eat and, and the whole table clears, that's directly unpleasant. And, and that, that took some getting used to, to know that, you know, I get my lunch, go through the line, sit at a table, and usually there are about 10 to 12 chairs at one table and then everybody jumps up and moves to another table and leaves you sitting there by yourself. That's directly unpleasant. So it was a lot of directly unpleasant. Mm -hmm. There were some students maybe that didn't, weren't as bad as the others, that didn't shout the names, and that didn't uh, jump up as fast. But uh, the most part, most of them were unpleasant. Kids will do and say things most hurtful. And uh, I just can't imagine how they could go and be faced with that every day. You know, I, I know that was just terribly, terribly hard. Peggy Blodgett, today on the administrative staff at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, was a white classmate of the Carters. We would walk down the halls, you know, and you would see the Carter members of the family coming, you know, walking down the hall with you. And I never saw, saw anyone reach out to them in conversation, myself included. You know, I know if I was, if it were just one-on-one, -on -one, um, I would smile and say hi. But there was no stopping and making conversation. You know, it was just, you know, you weren't told not to do that. It's just, you didn't do that. You know, that was a choice not to speak. That was the wrong choice. A car horn sounding the first few notes of Dixie as it passes by Drew High School today on a warm, placid spring afternoon. Back in 1965, when desegregation rules took effect, a wave of racial change rocked the entrenched social order here. Caught innocently in history's crossfire were the seven Carter children. Deborah was the youngest at age six. 
sitting down recently with two sisters, she recalled their difficult rite of passage, years that were often filled with sadness and isolation. I remember in third grade just having to stand against the wall of the school when you went outside. Um, nobody would play with, with me. Um, was that hard? That was hard, yeah. A lot of time I just hoped that it rained. If it rained, I didn't have to go to recess. We stayed inside. You know, I could work on puzzles, play, do something that you did as a single. Yeah, but that was hard. The thing that stick out most in my mind, it was the principal of the school. Beverly Carter. He was a really mean person. And I can remember how he would call us into the office and just degrade us and tell us how we stink and how we need to go home and bathe. And, and the thing about it was that my father would get up every morning real early, and he would, even though I was like eight years old, he would bathe me himself, you know, to make sure, because he didn't want that to happen, you know, to make sure they wouldn't have any excuse to say that we didn't smell nice or pleasant. So, uh, but still it didn't matter. To, the, to, to them, we still, you know, stomp, you know, it just didn't matter. And so that to me was the hardest thing. That's the thing that I would never forget is how this man was so cruel to a little child Another thing that sticks out is that I remember is that uh, when I was little, when I was in the third grade, uh, I wanted to be accepted so bad, you know, and be a part that uh, that some of the children would uh, ask me to hold their jump rope, and just and I knew that I couldn't jump, but I could. You know, I knew I could throw the rope. That way at least I would have somebody to play with. So I would just throw the rope. that was better than, you know, having to sit against the wall and do nothing all day. But they wouldn't let me jump. I couldn't jump. Some hard memories. Yeah, and uh, I don't know, going through it, to me, it wasn't as, as hard. So, I don't know. I just feel like it was something that we had to do, that we had no other choice, that we would, didn't have a choice. I feel like it was something that was playing. It was our, that was part of my life to do this, my family life to do this. And we didn't have a choice. It was something that we had to do. And I think the way we got through that is that God knew, you know, I think he played a big part in it. And that um, uh, he made the burden so we could handle it. He made it so we could go back day after day after day. And uh, because it's something that had to be done, and I think he chose this family to do it. And now bringing it back up, it hurts a whole lot more than when it was actually happening. Because for some reason, I think he uh, 
he made it light. He made the burden light for us. Why do you think these people's hearts were so hard? I, I, I think that it goes back to, I think they had just been raised that way. And I think it just goes back to slavery time. You know, I think it goes way back. I think it was something, and when it first started, it started with slavery and power and wanting to be in control. And the only way you could be in control and to treat people like that, you had to make them inhuman because you couldn't treat someone you liked that way. So you couldn't afford to like them. And so I think that's where it got started. And then after that, from it passed from generation to generation. It was just being taught. The Carter family was relentlessly harassed for daring to cross the age-old racial boundaries. The local grocery store that gave them credit for years suddenly cut them off. A work crew came and tore down the fence that enclosed their few farm animals. Finally, owners of the Pemble Plantation demanded they move out. The American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker organization, took a special interest in their case, alerting federal authorities and providing modest financial support to the family in its time of distress. But the Carters concluded they were whooped and left their hard life in the cotton fields, buying a modest home in the nearby town of Drew on a loan from the American Friends. Farmers their whole lives, Matthew and May Bertha Carter eventually got jobs working with young children at Head Start, where they were employed until retirement. The children continued in school. By now, their youngest was also old enough to attend. They studied hard, most later earning degrees at the University of Mississippi. Meanwhile, resentful whites withdrew their children from the integrated schools and established all-white private academies instead. Peggy Blodgett. Whatever my parents decided we would do, we would do. And as it turned out, uh, a private school was formed in my senior years, and we did attend. I did attend. So they continued that segregation, you know, because they are deep-rooted in all of that, you know. What was it that your parents and the parents of the other children who attended the segregated school were afraid of or resisted? Uh, I guess they saw it as a, a total change of what they knew, a, a life, you know, maybe the struggles that would be there, the, the, the conflicts, the, who know, the dangers, whatever. You know, it's just a fear. It's just a fear for, you know, their lives changing or drastically like that, I think. They would come to school and say, my mama told me, don't uh, play with this nigger, don't sit next to this nigger. Or my daddy said, we're going to have to find another school to go to and open up the private academies. So it was evident they were being taught that by their parents. But our parents were, were different. We were being taught something else. We were being taught that you don't hate anyone. You're not going to get ahead by hating anyone. Uh, we were taught that they are the ones with the problem. You don't have the problem. And we never got, never wanted to give up, never really hated. Um, because, um, like I said, that's what we were taught. And um, we also taught that if you start something, finish it. Please don't start and just stop in the middle because a lot of times you, you be, it's worse on you if you start something and stop it. And um, don't let them run you away. You have a right to be there. Don't let them uh, send you off because then they would have won. And you, we didn't want them to do that. 
and they would have won if we had turned to be just like they were, if we had turned to be someone who hated. But while the Carter children endured the slurs of white classmates, there were times when the frustration became nearly unbearable. May Bertha remembers when her oldest child in school, Ruth, reached a boiling point. She just would come home and she done been through that terrible day at school. And the teacher, looking at the teachers, see the children doing things to them, and the teachers never said a word. And she just was built up. She just had to let it out. She was built up. And she said, Mama, I hate these white folk. I hate them. I hate the teachers. I hate all of them. And then I said, Ruth, don't you ever let me hear you say that you hate peoples no more. And she said, well, Mama, you don't be over there where we at. You don't have to go through this every day. That's why you say it. And I say, Ruth, don't you ever let me hear you say that again. Because that's a bad feeling, and that feeling going to destroy you. You feel bad when you're hating people. So don't let that build up in you, please, Ruth. After all the harassment and the degradation that you were subjected to, weren't you filled with hatred? Mm-mm, no, not, not a day. Not one day. Not a day. I guess I was trusting in Jesus and the little angels that took care of me. And then when I get so sad and seems like I can't hold no more, then I start singing. And you know when we was picking cotton and got to pick all day and got to pick 200 to 300 pounds of cotton, you start singing so that it can lift you up. So I would always start a little singing, a little humming on a song or something. You get bitter, you supposed to sing. And stop, don't let that build up in you. So not, I don't know, I never did hate nobody. Thank God for that. Never. I just say, well, they don't know what they're doing. They just don't know. If they knew, maybe they would do better. And we wasn't going to let them get us down. See, you can let people get you down. Feel bad. Hating people. Don't let that get you down. Mm-mm. I never acted out. I never showed it. I never showed it to the children. I truly have total respect for May Bertha. Constance Curry was a field representative of the American Friends Service Committee and regularly visited the Carter family during desegregation. Now an historian, her acclaimed book, Silver Rights, recounts the Carters' remarkable saga of strength and faith. She treasures her friendship with May Bertha over the years. She's really, really smart as a whip. And so nothing gets past her. Even if she doesn't know the words, she knows the music. And therefore, nothing gets by her. And she gets mad, she gets angry at the, at the right... Um, at the right things, you know, and lets the the other things just slide off her shoulders. So she's just wise. And so she's like family. She's like friend. Um, 
and and we're we're a lot alike in many ways because we uh, the same things make us laugh and we we make fun not in a bad sense we make fun of the same things in people <laughs> so we're just very close now a moment ago you were telling me when you would get deeply frustrated you had long ago learned to sing yeah long ago you know what music do for you make you feel good <laughs> the press when you get the press mm-hmm. you sing i listen to some music could you sing one of the songs for us yeah i try to sing one <laughs> <laughs> and this is a song that i used to sing all the time singing and praying with my mind Stayed on freedom. Oh, I'm singing and I'm praying with my mind. Stayed on freedom. Singing and praying with my mind. Stayed on freedom. Hallelujah. 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 You know, it ain't no harm to keep your mind on freedom. Ain't no harm they keep your mind. <laughs> Stayed on freedom. Oh, it ain't no harm they keep your mind. Stayed on freedom. Hallelujah. 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 From the School of Education. The following students have earned the Bachelor of Science in Education degree. Mary J. Austin. Graduation Day at Delta State University, May 1998. Beverly Carter, the little girl who was allowed only to hold the jump rope of her white classmates, is receiving her second bachelor's degree, this time to become a teacher. Beverly Carter with honors. She was offered and has accepted a position on the faculty of the James Elementary School in Drew, the very school she integrated as a child. I always told them when they thought out to do something, be sure to try to do the best. When you're talking about education, be sure it's the best. So she did her best, and I'm happy. Their true motive here was simply to provide a better education for their children. Who of us doesn't want that? And what they did was provide opportunities for many, many future children. Former classmate Peggy Blodgett. Our generation of children, you know, if we're, if we're doing what we should by them, we're giving them a true picture of, of what occurred, you know, during that time. and and all the conflicts that were involved in teaching them to be what they should be, considerate of others and understanding. And you have to get beyond, you know, racism. You know, you have to uh, realize that we're on equal ground here.
You've been listening to Humankind with David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Associate producer, Tom Bryan. The program is presented in association with far-reaching communications and interlock media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Equal Ground, Humankind Program Number 3, is dedicated to the memory of May Bertha Carter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review at Apple Podcasts or another podcast service. It goes a long way in helping people find the Humankind series. And you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook or check out our YouTube channel for full episodes of the podcast. Again, the title is Humankind on Public Radio. Finally, if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to humankindpodcast.org and choose how you can help at the top of our homepage. That's humankindpodcast.org. Thanks.